Well, as we start the year together as a church, we're going through a reflection series on the Psalms. Uh, this series has been designed specifically for January, um, thinking back on the year that has been of 2023 and thinking forward on the year to come. And we feel it's appropriate to assess and evaluate um, our spiritual lives and how we're going with the heart stuff, um, the stuff that God grows in us to make us more like Jesus. And asking the question just simply, how are we going? How are we going with that? Uh, and I won't say much about the two weeks so far, except to say that if you miss them, you can actually find our sermons online. So they're on our website, they're on YouTube, they're also on Apple and Spotify podcasts. Um, so if you want to spend more time reflecting or if you've missed any of the sermons so far, feel free to have a look at those past sermons. Uh, in the first week, we looked at the importance of praising the Lord from Psalm 48. And last week, we looked at the importance of reading your Bible from Psalm 1. Today, we come to Psalm 32, and we're looking at the importance of confessing your sin. It's very easy as a Christian to think about how, yes, God saved me at first, and so I'm saved, and I have salvation. And sometimes we kind of just move on from there. And we sort of think uh, that we're going to go to higher learning of the Bible. You know, that's, that's our entrance journey. Uh, and we don't go back to confession. But actually, the more you look at the Bible, the more you look at the good news, the more you see that we're called to confess our sins continually. That's what Jesus taught, even in the Lord's Prayer. If you think to the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. It's the way we ought to keep praying, to keep confessing our sins, not just a once-off kind of thing. And the idea of having sin in your life, let alone the idea of confessing sin, is something that is completely not relatable in our society, I think. Uh, in our Western culture, the word sin hits our ears in different ways. What so sometimes happens when you talk about sin in the world is that people can laugh about it, uh, so like it's, like it's a joke. Um, the idea of something that's naughty or something forbidden so uh, gets talked about in a light-hearted way and promotes uh, maybe the temptation of chocolate. You're know, feeling a bit sinful today, go, go and buy that chocolate. Or, or maybe some naughty lingerie. Or even uh, have a bit of a light-hearted affair. It's no big deal. Uh, and so it's just a bit of a fun. And others hear sin and just uh, think, you know, it's a bit of fun. And others hear sin and think, don't talk about it. Just don't go there. Just, uh, I, don't, I don't want to think about sin in my life. Um, thanks very much. Don't talk about sin at all. But if you do talk about sin seriously like there's a right and wrong in this world, people, some people get nervous. Uh, and we ought to take it seriously. The Bible says that there's actually nothing more important than for us to understand that there's right and wrong, than for us to understand and know our sin. Um, the Bible says we have to know the concept of sin and understand it and confess it. And so I want to ask you this question as we start our time together. When was the last time you did confess your sin to God, like in your daily practices. When was the last time you confessed your sins to God? And this brings us to Psalm 32. This psalm is an incredible psalm because it talks about the need, the need for confession, to confess our sins to God and the blessing of it, the blessedness of it. So this might strange, sound strange to talk about it this way, but it's an uplifting psalm, Psalm 32. Um, verse 1 starts with, 
blessed is the one who. That's similar to how Psalm 1 started. And if you remember from last week, that word blessed is to declare a deep-seated happiness in your life that runs so deep that no matter what you're going through, um, the joy that you feel from doing this will not be taken away. So it's this deep-seated joy to be the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Confession isn't this uh, concept <clears throat> created by God or others that's designed to steal our joy. It's actually designed to bring us joy. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and it brings us closer to our Heavenly Father. Blessedness comes from confessing instead of hiding. And that's what we're very good at is hiding and covering our sin. So as we walk through this psalm, there's three points I'm going to make. Um, I want us to look at the need for confession the liberation of confession, and the effects of confession. So they're the three points. The need for confession, the liberation of confession, and the effects of confession. So we're going to start at verse 1, the need for confession. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In this verse, David uses two words for sin, you'll, you'll notice there. The first is where he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That word transgression is a Hebrew word. It's, uh, it's called pasha. And that word pasha, uh, essentially, if you boil it down, what it means is that it's a rebellious statement of fact that you believe about yourself. It's a rebellious statement of fact about yourself. It's a very carefully thought out word that David uses, actually. Um, it's him saying sin is the core of our being. Uh, which is the impulse that we all have. It's the one that, the impulse that we have that whenever we're challenged about something, whenever we're questioned about something, it's the statement of fact we say to ourselves, no one tells me what to do. We all have that, don't we? No one tells me what to do. Uh, no one tells me how to live my life. That's what Pasha is. That, that's what it means. It's this rebellious statement of fact that we have about ourselves. It's the self-centeredness we feel that someone is limiting us, that someone is making our lives terrible. It's the sin of saying, no one tells me what to do. It's the feeling you get when you're challenged by someone or questioned by someone that makes you just want to fight, you know, break something, be right, to, sh to shut that person down. And here's the thing. If at the core of our being is this impulse, which we all have, uh, then we don't want any limitations on what we want. So if something gets in the way of what we want, we get mad about it. Um, if, if something gets in the way of what we want so badly, we are happy to break it. So what I mean by that is, if there's a rule that limits us from this feeling, well, no one tells me what, what to do or how to live, so we break the rule. Uh, if there's a promise we make that limits us from what we want, we'll break the promise. And it can even break our relationships. So if you love someone, but they limit you from doing what you want, we'll break that relationship. The rebellious statement of fact that we tell ourselves, that no one tells me what to do. And it makes us break things. That's pasha. That's transgression. The second word in verse 1 is the word sin. This is not the same word. Uh, this is the Hebrew word, hata. And this word means to go off the path. 
What's the purpose of a path? Very easy, really, isn't it? A path is designed to take you somewhere. It's literally the purpose of a path. So if you leave a path, you leave safety. You leave, um, you, you lose your way. It, at its extreme, if you leave a path, you know, if you're out exploring in the woods or something, if you leave a path, you lose where you are. You can actually lose uh, where you are. You, you can get lost. You might fall into a trap or a pit. Um, and at the worst, um, very unlikely, but at the worst, you could fall off a cliff. That's what it means to, to leave a path. And here's how it works in terms of sin. So think about something we, we've all done. Lie. <coughs> Lying. What happens when you lie and you don't get caught? Does anything happen to you? From the surface, it seems like no. But because you've gone off the path, you, you lose your way a bit, and the person who you've lied, it actually does do something to that relationship. It, it wears down the, the relationship of the person that you've lied to. Lying begins to ruin relationships. Lying to someone is saying, actually, I don't treat you like a human. Um, I'm treating you more like an object to get what I want. You lie not because you want to protect the person. You lie because you want to protect yourself. Um, did you know that studies show that the more you lie, the less you will trust other people? It's very interesting. Now, take some of the Ten Commandments for this idea of hatar. Do not lie, do not kill, do not steal. When the Bible talks about these things, it's a model to show us how to live. It shows us how to stay on the path, and it shows us how relationships work. And when we sin, when we leave the path, we violate the design that God intended. We leave the path and our relationships break down. And so the end of verse 1 is really insightful. David says the one whose sins are covered and whose transgressions are forgiven are the one who's blessed. This points to the fact that we need covering, that we actually need covering, that sin is covered. Um, Tim Keller has an excellent illustration I'm going to borrow, so because I'm going to borrow it, I better mention his name. He says, imagine that you look through a keyhole and someone is looking right at you through that keyhole. So they see and hear everything that you do. They see and hear everything that you say. They can even hear what you're thinking and you know that they can see you. But you can't hear or see anything about them. So they just have full access to look at you through the keyhole and see and think and hear everything that you're thinking and doing. How would you feel? It would be intolerable, wouldn't it? We couldn't handle that. It would be dehumanizing. It would feel like we're in the zoo. Uh, it would be hell because we need cover. We need covering of ourselves. And if we can't control what people know about us and what we do and what we say and what we hear, then we're done for. But here's why this is interesting. We live in a culture, culture that tells you that right and wrong isn't absolute. You can do what's right for you and that's good for you. But even if you consider yourself a modern person and you believe that right and wrong isn't absolute, you would still feel sinful. You would still feel sinful if someone was looking at your life through a keyhole. Isn't that interesting? Let's get back to something I said earlier. If you were married and you have an affair, is that okay? We live in a society that hesitates to answer. And that's, you know, many people would say it's okay. And 
This is the first time in any written history where this would be true. But even so, if people had an affair and didn't feel guilty, you can still feel sinful without feeling guilty. Because we still can't shake the feeling that if someone was watching us the whole time, that we would be doing something wrong or that we have done something wrong. We can't shake the feeling that something is wrong with us. People you know who may not believe in hell and sin or God or guilt or absolute truth or moral absolutes, um, every single one of us still has a voice in our head that we can't shake. And that voice condemns us. It says things like, you're fake. You're a cheat. You're a liar. You're not good enough. You're an imposter. You will never be good enough. You're not doing enough. And it all stems from sin in our lives. And we all feel like we have to cover it. Some of the obvious ways we try and cover sin in our life is a long list. So uh, we'll blame shift. Hey, it wasn't my fault that I reacted. There's no way I would react this way if they just did the right thing to me. That's what I say often in the traffic. What really was my sin? We just redefine sin. We redefine sin in our lives to the point where we define it away. We criticise. Well, at least my sin isn't as bad as that person. I'm not nearly as messed up as that person. I'm very glad for that. And, and we try and defend ourselves or we try and achieve things, other things, to point to those things. Well, you know, I did this pretty good, though. Or at least I'm strong over here, but, you know, I might be weak over here, but look at this part of my life. So we try and mask the reality of what we've done. Or maybe we just disconnect. This is too hard. You know, I feel so bad, I'm just going to watch TV. I did the wrong thing, I'm just going to go watch the Netflix and not deal with my sin. Perhaps we think, well, you know what, I'll just work harder. I'll give to charity more. I had a friend who, whenever he, he sinned in a particular way, he thought, well, I'm just going to give to charity because then that makes me feel better. Or maybe we self-medicate. Just one more drink. We'll take the pain away. Just one more hit. Just one more sinful video. I'll use whatever is in my grasp to make me feel better at this point in time and we try and cover up the reality of what we're doing because we can't face it. We become the biggest hypocrites trying to cover our own sin. Could you imagine if someone followed you your whole life? Could you imagine this? If someone follows you your whole life and every time you judge someone and every time uh, you told someone else how they should live their life, that that person recorded your your, what you said, and they recorded every single time that you thought or said something about that person. Now, and now imagine that you get to the end of your life and God says, you know what, I'm not going to judge you by my standards. Let's just put the recorder on and we'll judge you by your own standards. How would you go? We wouldn't pass the test for our own standards. Because trying to hide our sin doesn't work. That's what Adam and Eve did, by the way, in the Garden of Eden. They didn't confess their sin. They hid from God. They couldn't cover their sin and shame, and neither can we. Our attempts to try and cover sin is the same as Adam and Eve's, uh, and, and they attempted just to make clothes from fig leaves. That didn't work. We're still laid bare before God. Now, we know we're sinners. If you don't, even if you don't choose to wear the guilt of it, we know something's wrong with us. So what do we do with that? 
The reason we feel we need to cover our sin points to the fact that we need someone to cover it for us. We need someone to make us right and deal with our sin. David says the only one who can is God. So let's go to point two, the liberation of confession. Verse two, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What David is uh, simply pointing out here is that some people pretend. They pretend to confess. So they say something, but it's not sincere. Still deceitful. You know, we're not really sorry about it. Have you ever been in that position? It's like when uh, I watch my kids say sorry to each other. Oh, yes. um, Did you hit them? Yeah, I did. Well, you have to say sorry. Oh, sorry. We're not sorry. We're only sorry we got caught. But we do it much worse than our kids, don't we? We do something wrong. We hurt someone. We hurt our spouse, say. But you aren't sorry for what you did. You just got sorry for being caught. That's sorry for doing something wrong against them. It's, it's not that. I got caught out. And as soon as the consequence is gone, we're back. Blessedness doesn't lie in fake confession. Blessedness in verse 2 is found in God's example for us. Verse 2 says that God doesn't count our iniquity against us. He doesn't bring it up. You know what it's like when someone fake forgives you? Because you hear about it again, don't you? You say sorry and they haven't actually forgiven you because then something happens a month down the track and they'll bring it up again. You said you wouldn't do that. God isn't like that. His, his forgiveness is real. Psalm 103 verses 11 and 12 says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. But David doesn't just know this in theory. He knows it personally. This is his experience of holding on to sin. Hear, hear his experience of holding on to sin, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is the sort of thing that happens when we try and cover sin. When we keep silent, we emotionally and physically begin to waste away. It's when you lose your appetite. You know, it's when you become despondent and depressed. When you're weighed down, when you find no relief. Many of us know something of that. When you've wronged God or when you've wronged someone else and you haven't confessed and it eats you. Some of us might be feeling that now. It keeps you up at night. It makes you not want to interact with people. It makes you not want to come to church. David says we need to confess it. Look at what happens when David confesses his sin in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's the liberation of confession. The sin is forgiven. It's liberating because it stops you having to cover it up, which doesn't work. It's liberating because it relieves your conscience. It silences the voice. It changes you so that you don't do the things again that you want to do. But the only way this works is if we have a clear standard of what God thinks. What I mean by that is that 
we, if we have a standard of anything other than God, this doesn't work. Because some people don't feel guilty or feel the need to confess about things they should. Some people feel guilty about things they shouldn't. Take war crimes. There was a man by the name of Ben Robert Smith who was in the papers all last year. I don't know if you read about him. He was a convicted war criminal in, in uh, the middle of 2023. But he fought the court because he didn't feel guilty. He didn't feel the need to confess about any of the charges against him. He, he had worked this out in his head. Public opinion can't judge me. They weren't there. I know I was right. Now, in some sense, this is the right attitude. Meaning that when we come to sin, we can't actually judge sin by society standards. But when, where Ben Robert Smith would fail is that he needs to in, take into account what God thinks of his actions. And so should we. So let's explore that for a bit. Um, public opinion can't determine what's right and wrong for us. That's a big claim. I don't think we can let our heart be judged by society. Because what society says is right and wrong can change. So, for example, think about the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Um, culturally, it was acceptable. It was quite acceptable that because it was the sexual revolution, we could experiment so what, you, what we actually found in the 1960s and what's coming out now is that in university settings and even some high school settings, sleeping between teachers and students was acceptable. It's a sexual revolution. We're, we're finding out about our bodies. It's all fine. What do we find now? You see case after case of people who are in court because of this. But in the 60s, it was fine. Hey, it was the 60s. It's all love and peace. It's great. Do what you want. The term power imbalance hadn't, it wasn't known. Didn't exist. This is an example, I think, of why public opinion can't determine what's right and wrong. There are things that public opinion says is good, but that can be bad. And there's public opinion that says that some bad things are good. We can't acknowledge sin by public opinion. We can't do it. Public opinion changes and it will always change. We can't let public opinion or our conscience be our guide. What actually we need is clarity. We need a clear line. We need to care about what God thinks, and he has a clear line for us. There could be things that you feel no guilt about right now, but as you read the word and as God moves through you in 20 years' time, you might feel guilty about something you're doing. You'll feel the need to confess it, but you didn't 20 years ago because God will convict you by his word on it. That's why we've got to let God decide. Because if the Bible is your guide, then it's clear. Or it will become clear. When we own up to sin and the standard that God has given us, it's liberating. Liberating confession is when you own your sin. Look at the last line of verse 5. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. That word iniquity means sinfulness. So it means you forgave the sinfulness of my sin. It's a powerful thing we need to understand that God does when it comes to our sin. So if a husband and wife, say, is abusive verbally, you know, there's, there's someone who's abusive verbally in the relationship and they separate for a time, and the one who is actually verbally abusive says, you know what, okay, okay, I'll change. Just come back. I'll, I won't do it again. They come back together and things work out for a while, but then they know, okay, well, I've convinced my spouse to come back. 
So I'm going to become verbally abusive again. Have they admitted their sin and repented? No. What they've done is repented of the embarrassment of being caught out for their sin, for the inconvenience and the consequence of their sin, but not the sinfulness of it. You see the difference? They aren't worried about what they did to their spouse or God. They worry about what has happened to them. When we have sin in our lives and we try and change it but don't actually change, it's because we're not confessing the sinfulness of our sin. We aren't sorry for the sinfulness of our hearts, but the liberation of confessing your sin changes your heart. So what you've done and what you're doing has no attraction to you anymore. It has no power over you anymore. So the sinfulness of your sin will repulse you. But likewise, if you just sit and wallow in your sin, and you say, oh, my sin has hurt me, I'm going to beat myself up about it, that's no use either. That's just dragging it out. That's, that's like trying to pay the debt of your sin by saying, look, I'm miserable for it. Can't you see? I'm miserable. I'm hating myself for it. But that's just hating yourself. That's, that's not hating your sin. Confessing sin is so important for us to talk about, isn't it? Because there is never a day where we won't sin. There is never a day where we won't love Jesus perfectly. Not one day. But this also means there's never a day where you or I will lose sight of how good Jesus is. That's the flip side. There is never one day where we will not know how much we need Jesus. There is never one day that God's love for us that led him to send his son to die for us will be precious because we understand our sin. So what will change you? What will change your heart? What will liberate you? If we don't confess sin and if we try and cover it up, it will eat us until our conscience becomes dead and we don't notice sin anymore. And this is why we need point three, the effects of confession. So let me make some comments about point three, which is taken from verses 6 to 11. Um, David moves from the liberation of confession to a place where he wants to tell others, where he wants to teach about the goodness of confession. He says, don't wait. That's what he says. Don't let my experience in verses 3 and 4 be yours. Just confess now. Confess while you can. He says in verse 6, in the rush of great waters, they won't reach you. David's talking about a time where, where judgment will happen. Well, one day we will be judged by God. So don't wait until that day. Don't wait when forgiveness won't reach you. Do it now. Don't hide your sins. Confess them and hide yourself in God. That's what he says. Let God cover you in his steadfast love. Verse 9, don't be stubborn as a horse who needs, to who needs someone to control them to be led. Don't be stubborn as a mule to confess your sins. Don't be so proud, he's saying. Don't be so proud to admit that you need this. Don't hide your failures. Expose them. Come to God because you're sorry and because he's good and he will forgive. Verses 10 and 11 Many are the sorrows of those who don't confess, but steadfast love surrounds those who do. Because when you realize that coming to God with confession brings forgiveness and him surrounding you in his love, the result is deep-seated joy. It's, it's blessedness, which comes back to verse 1. What David says here is astounding. 
It's, it's amazing. It's essentially, imagine that you're all back in high school again and the teacher gives you a test and we all fail. Right? We probably would all fail a maths test. But confessing our sin, what David is saying is the equivalent to saying that the teacher says, you know what, I know you bombed the test, but I'm not going to count your fail mark against you. I'm going to cover it. I'm going to cover it over. How can David say that? How can he know that God wouldn't cover his sin against him? Is that the just God? Is that the just God that we know? Why would God not count David's sin against him? Romans 4 asks the same question. It says, what shall we say? Are we justified by our good works? No. The person who trusts the one who justifies the wicked, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was hung on a cross. And his death was a death of exposure. As he was on the cross, he was stripped naked and exposed. There was nowhere to hide for Jesus. He was naked on the cross with his hands nailed to it. So he could not cover himself. He was stripped bare for all to see with no way for anyone to not see him. The Son of God, having done no wrong, exposed bare for all to see. There's the ultimate keyhole. This is Jesus for everyone to see. Why did Jesus do that? He did it because it's what we deserve for our sin. He prayed the price so that when you say, Jesus, save me, Father, accept me, forgive my sin, not because of anything I do, I can't cover my sin, I uncover it to you, so cover me. And so Jesus becomes uncovered and stripped bare for all to see. That's what he does for you on the cross. Jesus offers you forgiveness, but it does come at a cost. 1 John 1.9 is a well-known Bible verse to many of us. It's the one that says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why does it say that God is just doing so? John's very careful, I think, in choosing the words that he uses in saying that God is just. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that God is faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins. That's what we'd expect, isn't it? God is faithful and just. The reason God will forgive you and offer you his forgiveness is because he's a just God. Because the debt is paid by Jesus for you. That's justice. Because the debt is paid and because Jesus was uncovered on the cross so that you could have his covering. Can you see how forgiven you are? That when you truly come to confess your sin, Jesus takes it all. In Christ, I am freely forgiven. Can your heart say that? This is the beautiful exchange of confession. When you confess your sin, when you confess that you have done wrong and you need to change, it costs Jesus his life. So as we start the year afresh in 2024, do you desire greater joy with Jesus? Confess your sin. Make a habit out of it. Make it regular. Do it more and more. 
Because the point of confessing your sin is forsaking it. And if there's sin you won't confess in your life, then that means there's sin in your life that you will never forsake. So will you uncover that sin to Jesus? Come to him and forsake the things that hurt him. Forsake the things that hurt you. Forsake the things that hurt your family and bring harm to you and other people and find the joy and blessing of forgiveness. The last thing I want to say, if you do this, it might make you aware of the plank in your eye. And if you confess your sin regularly, it will make you far more gracious when you see the speck in someone else's eye. Confessing your sin will help you forgive others because you'll know the joy of being forgiven yourself. And if you're not a Christian today, uh, know that God brought you here to know this. So I'd plead with you, don't try and, and cover your sin from God. It doesn't work. If you try and cover your sin, they will be uncovered one day. And they will be revealed for all to see. So confess it. Don't try and hide it. It doesn't work. Tell God you're sorry for ignoring him and living life without him. Come to him. Confess your sin. Know his forgiveness and trust in Jesus. Blessed is the one, Psalm 32 verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Would you keep working in us a deep-seated joy of confession in our lives? For those who you are stirring in their hearts to confess, would we bring them to you? For those of us who are stirring in their hearts to forgive, would you bring them to yourself? Would you make us more like Jesus today and would our lives reflect a greater depth of forgiveness? We pray this for our sake and your glory. Amen.